All right, church, well, here we go. Advent week two. Advent week two. It's a pleasure of mine to be able to continue this series as we've entitled The Glory of Christ. Whereas I mentioned last week, we have set out as a church to enter into the drama of God's glory, which we think is really the drama of the Bible that God is desiring to display and declare his glory for us to see and behold. And it really is my desire that we would wade deep into that pool over the coming weeks. And particularly because of what the Advent season, what the Christmas season, what the holiday season often brings with it. Because across cultures, right, across socioeconomic factors, you know, across gender, across any category of sociology that you could have, there's two realities when it comes to this season. It is often the most joyable and can often be the most difficult. The most joyable and the most difficult. Joyous in that we get to celebrate a lot of good things with family and friends, don't we? Right, joyous that we get to sing those wonderful Christmas songs. Joyous that we can right, see snow on the mountains. Right? Maybe you've attended some of the gazebo lightings in the valley or the parade of lights last night. Maybe you've stoked the fires at home. You've had a warm drink. You've already bought in presents that you're excited to exchange. There's a lot of joy in the season. But we also know that it can be incredibly heartbreaking this time of year where you are faced with the reality that a loved one is not with you anymore. Or maybe the, the life that you thought you would have hasn't shown up yet. Or maybe it just doesn't look the same and probably never will. There can be a lot of heartbreak that comes with the Advent season. And it's in the midst of that tension, church. It's in the midst of both of those realities, often both happening at the same time for many of us. That tension, I think God speaks directly into because he knows those things, right? He's given us the good gifts, and he also is very aware of the brokenness of this world, and he's, he's always stepping into it. And he does it so in a particular way that I want to look at is by declaring his glory. I think the glory of Christ's church really then provides the way that we can enjoy the good things rightly, but also let the difficult things not have the last word. I think the glory of God allows for that to happen. And if you're not a Christian this morning, one is I'm glad you're here. I hope this is a safe place for you to investigate the claims of Christ. There's no pressure for you to believe something that you don't believe. But we do want you to join us. We're asking for the Spirit of God to move in your own life to where you would be able to behold the glory of Christ. That you would be able to see that Christmas is it's not about Santa. right? It's not about elves. It's not about reindeer. It's not about wishful thinking. It's about God. It's about God that he's come into this world. It's about God who has displayed and declared his glory by sending his son in whom we get to observe 
and remember and long for to come back. We want you to join us in glorying in Christ as we consider the glory of God in him. And so our focus this morning is going to be really to look into how did God reveal himself? Why is it important to realize that when Jesus came into the world, he came so as God himself? Because if we want to understand God, right, if we want to know what he's like, if we want to try to understand, okay, I'm told that God is all-powerful, that he's all-knowing, that he's omnipresent, meaning that he is not limited in the way that I am limited. If we want to know that God, the God of the Bible, the good news for us, church, is we don't have to look any further than the person of Jesus Christ. If we want to know God, we can look at Christ and know him fully and truly. And that's really good news for us. We're not waiting. We're not going, I hope one day we might understand what God is like or who God is. God has answered that for us, church. And that's what we're, we're going back to this Advent season. And that's why we're going back to that birth of Christ in some ways. Because it was that morning, that day, that Christmas day in which we do see that the visible or the invisible glory of God was made visible in Jesus. The glory of God was made visible for us to see. And as John Owen rightly points out that the glory of Christ really is the glory of the church. And so I want to do that by looking at the book of Hebrews this morning to start us off. The book of Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1. That's going to be on page 1001 if you're using one of those black ESV pew Bibles. And as you're turning there, I would like to stop and pray one more time like I normally do. So because I want to pray for you and I want you to pray for me. So let's do that together and then I'll read Hebrews for us. Well, Father, I want to come to you one more time before we consider your word. And before we walk into some of those wonderful waters of your, your goodness and your beauty and your glory. Father, I want to pray for every person in this room this morning that you would give them a heart that delights in Christ today. God, that you would give them a mind that delights to see the beauty of you in your word. And Father, I pray that we wouldn't have hope and conviction this morning when, when considering the glory of Christ that it's not a glory like anything else, but it's unique and something worthy of consideration over and over again. And Father, I also want to pray for our kiddos next door and for the teachers that are leading them. God, their hearts, their littlest of hearts have been created, have been designed to see your glory. So God, I pray that they would be able to take steps in that today. That they'd be able to see how the beautiful things that they often observe in this world through your creation are signposts to your glory. And even my kids and the kids of many in this room, 
that when we walk out of this building as a family, as a church family, we would do so by cherishing and loving you more than when we first walked in. And so we lift up all this up into your mighty, full, mighty and powerful name, Jesus. Amen. All right, Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Just a couple of verses to get us going this morning. The author of Hebrews says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Church, this is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Thanks be to God indeed. Yeah, we're thankful for God's word. That's why we say that. Now, last week in our introduction to the series, I went back to the Old Testament, went to the book of Exodus, where we see one of the patriarchs in the faith, a man named Moses, having this time with God. He asks God one of the most beautiful and compelling and rich prayers in all of the Old Testament, Exodus 33, 18. If you recall, it's when Moses asked God to show him his glory, to show him his glory. And if you recall, one of the ways that God communicated and even answered that prayer to Moses is he said that his glory would be proclaimed in his name, that God himself would take actions to make his name known. Because if you know his name, then you will know his glory. And God made that promise, in a sense, to proclaim his glory in his name. Now, although Moses was able to see in part the glory of God through the cleft of the rock, what we left last week was there's something more to come. Right? There's something more in Exodus 33 in which the people of God were longing for to see the glory of God, to see the face of God. Now later in the Bible, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah would pick up on this in one of his prophecies, Isaiah 60, verse 2, where, he, where the prophet Isaiah, and speaking on behalf of God, we see this promise. From Isaiah, it says, For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. This longing for the glory of God to be seen. And throughout the Old Testament, there's this anticipation for the glory of God to be seen. And really, the rest of the Old Testament is God's people, they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're waiting until one night, the angels appear in the sky singing about what, church? The glory of God that's here. That the Savior has been born. That the glory of God has been made visible. It's what Paul would say in Colossians 1.15, that the invisible God has been made visible in Jesus Christ. And this is where I want to spend our time. Then why is that important? Why is that important to consider that God came 
So I want to contemplate, I want to gaze into, think through the reality of the testimony of Scripture that God's glory can be seen and observed and beheld in the glory of Christ. So let's return to Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But something's changing. Something has changed. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Right? Who's Hebrews talking about? Who's he? He's talking about Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And without a shadow of a doubt, we see the beauty that comes with looking and beholding this Jesus. In verse 3, we see that he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God the exact imprint of his nature. That the glory that Jesus has is the glory of God. It's that glory that we looked at last week that Jesus prayed for in John 17, that all Christians, including us today, that we would behold, that we would consider, that we would be changed by the glory of Christ. And as we remember, what is God's glory? I've been talking about it a lot, but what is it? Well, in some ways, glory is really hard to define. But God's glory can entail all of his magnificence, all of his perfectness, his loveliness, his grandeur, his weightiness, the praise of his name. Glory is a a big word, church. And it encompasses all that is beautiful and right. And where can we see that? In the radiance of Jesus Christ. Because he is the exact imprint of his nature. Now, that wording, the exact imprint of his nature, deserves special consideration. Because even in our day, both from Christians and non-Christians, and if if you're wondering about what general American evangelicals believe, I would point you to a study that's done by Ligonier Ministries. They do a, a state of theology every year. And it gives some really helpful insight to what do actually Christians believe about God and the Bible and the gospel? Well, that study once again shows that even Christians, unfortunately, don't understand the beauty that Jesus is truly God. That we tend to downplay who Jesus is. We tend to downplay that, you know, he was just a, maybe a, a really good guy with good morals that we should emulate. Or many people believe that, yeah, he was just like one of us, but because of the way that he lived his life, he actually earned divinity. He earned his godhood. And so we should do likewise. Or there's even a lot of people that believe that he was just a really insightful prophet. He just knew a lot of things about God, but he was not God himself. Well, those are all heresies because Jesus is truly God. Here in Hebrews it says he is the exact imprint of his nature. Meaning that all of what Christ is and who he is, is God. The exact imprint of his nature. Now, this is hard to conceptualize. And I get that. Because there's nothing really like it in the world. But I would say it's in a way that it's not. It's much like me and my son Levi, who many of you guys have seen. I consider him a mini-me. Right? He looks like me. 
I'm sure he's going to act like me. Maybe you, some of you say he already does. But even though he is like me in many ways, he is not the exact imprint of me. He is not me and I am not him. But Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. The exact imprint of the nature of God. That he and God are of the same divine essence. He doesn't just have some of God's divine essence, but he is God's divine essence. And therefore, right, the beauty then of considering and looking back to when Jesus came into this world, even though he was born of the Virgin Mary, right, he took on human flesh, he was still fully God. He was still truly God. As a song that we're going to sing in just a little bit, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, one of the lines in there. It talks about how he veiled himself in humanity. God veiled himself in humanity. But he was always God. He never became less than God. And he is still God to this day, ruling and reigning on his throne. As the prophet said, one day Emmanuel would come. And Emmanuel means God with us. And that was Jesus Christ, church, God with us. But what does this have to do with the glory of Christ? Or what does this even have to do with our lives? Right? Isn't this just right, petty theological knowledge that often just lives in maybe the, the ancient creeds or councils of the past? Is it really worth consideration for us today to remember that Jesus was truly God? Because, pastor, don't you know? Don't you know that there's shopping to do, right? There's things that I have to get done. Don't you know that there's parties to attend? Don't you know that I have kids to take care of? I have sick kids to take care of. I have parents to take care of. I have sick parents to take care of. Don't you know that there's drama in my family? Does this really have to, is this really important to consider right now, right before Christmas? Well, church, before I answer that, I hope you know that as one of your pastors, and a pastor is a shepherd that cares for the flock, I know that there's things going on in your lives. Oftentimes, I have a front row seat to what's going on in your lives. Even right now, as I'm looking out to all of you, I know that there's, I can picture many situations, picture many heartbreaking conversations that you've had over the last couple of weeks that I know you carry on your shoulders when you walk through the doors this morning. And there's probably a greater percentage of things going on in your life that I have no idea about. But God does. He knows it all. And he is the one who makes such a big deal about his glory for Christians, for followers of his to consider and behold regularly. And so I would just encourage you that this matters. This matters greatly in your life. I would argue the glory of Christ becomes the anchor that can actually, that you will be tied to, that you will abide in, oftentimes during those deep, stressful times. And I think we learn this 
that the glory of God, the glory of Christ is such a big deal from Jesus himself. That he was always on this mission to show us his glory. That he wanted us to be captivated by it. To cling to it. And one of the ways that I think we see this is by uh, a part of Jesus' earthly ministry where he takes three disciples up onto this mountain, which then becomes known as the Mount of Transfiguration. And to that, I would like to turn your attention to the Gospel of Mark. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn there with me. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 2. It will be on the screen as well. But if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it. And here's where I think we see Jesus showing us that every follower of his, every Christian, actually has a duty and a privilege to observe the glory of Christ. So let me read this, Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Verse 7, And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So church, this is a magnificent moment in the lives of these three disciples, Peter, James, and John, where they are taken up this mountain, right? They didn't go to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, we would really like to see your glory. Right? They didn't have right, those categories for that yet. But Jesus knew that their hearts, their souls were designed to see the glory of Christ. So he takes them to the mountain. And upon this mountain, we see that Jesus is transfigured. He's transfigured, meaning that his divine essence was brought forth to be observed in a way that had not been seen yet. And all that, the way that the author could describe this is saying that Jesus' clothes were so white, so pure, whiter than anything that this world could ever give, that it was shockingly white, that Jesus was able to be something that nothing in this earth could ever be. And that was a reflection of God's divinity, right? God's holiness, God's goodness that is utterly unique to him. And these disciples were able to see it in this moment, be able to behold this, this beauty of the transfiguration of Jesus. But then we see something in verse 4, don't we? It's not just Jesus on the mountain with the disciples. There's actually a couple of other guys, Moses and Elijah. They appear and they're talking to Jesus. And what's going on there? What are they talking about? Why is it these two guys that are up on this mountain? Well, in many ways, Moses and Elijah represented all of the Old Testament. 
where Moses represented the law of God, everything that was written about the law of God. And Elijah represented everything that had been written about the prophets. So all of the Old Testament is often attributed to these two individuals, even though they were not the authors of every book in the Old Testament. They are used as representatives. But then why are they talking to Jesus? And what are they talking about? Well, we're not privy to exactly what that conversation is. But one of the reasons I think why Peter, James, and John were able to observe that these guys were talking to Jesus is because it was reflective of what their ministry was all about. Of pointing people to Jesus. That all of the Old Testament, all of the law, and all of the prophets were highlighting and pointing to the glory of Jesus. The glory of God in Jesus. And so there's this visible manifestation of the reality of the Old Testament, which we considered last week. That they were pointing to him. All of the Old Testament scriptures were pointing to him. In this moment, can you imagine this church? It had to be so good. So breathtaking to see something so pure and so holy in front of you and you not be killed by witnessing it. And it's so good, and then it gets kind of ruined by what? Peter. Poor Peter. Right? He does what we would do. It, it look, at, look at what Peter says. So starting in verse 5, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, I interrupt the conversation. I think it's probably still happening between Elijah and Moses. Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Well, no, no kidding, Peter. <laughs> and, then, and then Peter, and he goes on to talk about building tents for everybody. You know, and, and we can rag on Peter all we want, but Peter's just like us, isn't he? I'm just like that. I know that instead of marveling at the glory of God, I often find things to think about in worldly ways. That instead of beholding the reality and the beauty that's often right in front of me, I start thinking about other things that I need to do. I'm just like Peter. And how is that much the case during this season? A season that's supposed to be pointing back to God coming down, that we get so preoccupied with what? All kinds of other things. Maybe it's not building tents, but maybe it's you name it. And is it, are those things bad? No, maybe not in and of themselves. Unless they're taking your eyes off of beholding the glory of Christ. That you're more concerned with those things than what, what God is wanting to reveal to you right this moment. Well, then what happens? We see this cloud come and engulf everybody, and, and then we're, we get to hear that there's this voice, and it's the voice of God the Father speaking that Jesus is the beloved Son, and to listen to Him, to listen to Him. And then in a moment, what happens? They're all gone. They're all gone, except for who, in verse 8, we see is left alone. Jesus is there alone. A picture of that 
What God the Father was showing us in that moment is we're not waiting for another name. We're not waiting for another person. We're not waiting for somebody else to show us the glory of God. But it's Jesus alone. It's the full radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Now, what kind of impact do you think this had on the disciples? Right? Being upon this mount of transfiguration, what impact does it have when you see and behold the glory of Christ? Well, your soul clings to it. Your soul treasures it. You never get over it. In many ways, it becomes the drumbeat of your life. Now, what would happen right in the moments after this in the Gospel of Mark is, is Jesus would continue on his way to the cross, wouldn't he? That although he was fully God, he came as a man, came as a man that would die on the behalf of sinners like you and I. That even though Jesus had the full glory of God, what his glory entailed was to make sure that people like you and I could be restored and redeemed back into the family of God. So what did Jesus do? He went to the cross. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, Jesus could have boasted in his righteousness. He could have boasted in his perfect life, but yet what he did is he laid down that life so that we could boast in it, in his life. Jesus could have condemned us as sinners because we are, but rather allowed God the Father to condemn him for our sins on the cross. You see, the glory of God and the glory of Christ entails the cross, church. And although we are looking at a lot of neat things throughout our study during this Advent series, never let the cross be far from your mind. Each time you look at a nativity scene, remember that nativity scene in the years and the days that followed after that morning were the cross, the resurrection, the ascension. So even though the glory of Christ is about the grandeur, right, the majesty, the beauty that Jesus is God, we cannot divorce God's glory from what God did with his humanity. And we're going to look at that more next week in talking about Jesus' humiliation for our behalf. That God taking on human flesh is one of the most glorious things that we could ever think about in our lives. But I want to return to Peter. Because Peter, as I mentioned, when your soul, when you see the glory of Christ, when you behold that, when you allow that to be not just an intellectual understanding, but rather a a heart-pricking devotion. Your soul clings to it. And Peter never got over seeing and beholding the glory of Christ. He never got over it. None of the disciples did. But let me take you to 2 Peter 1.16. You don't have to turn there. I'll have it on the screen. You're welcome to, though. And this is where in Peter, one of his epistles, one of his letters... He talks about this moment again as he's writing to Christians. 
And he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. You see, Peter and the rest of the apostles, they never got over the glory of Christ. They never got over this moment that they had with him. Right? They never tried to move past it. They never tried to make Christianity something more than beholding the glory of God in Christ. They never got over it. And what I love about Peter here in verse 19, though he had this unique experience with Jesus, and he loved that experience, what we see is that he's actually encouraging the church, then and us today, that we have something more fully confirming and declaring the glory of Christ. Did you catch that in verse 19? says, we have something more fully confirming. We have the word of God. We have the prophecies that give us all of these details. We have the word of God that speaks to the glory of Christ in ways that no other Christian has had. That we have something more fully confirming. We have something that delights in the glory of Christ that's unique to us. Us Christians, us today that we have the Bible, that we have the richness of that. And he says that we are to pay attention to those prophecies. We are to pay attention to that beauty until what? Since the day dawns and the morning star rises. Now, what is Peter talking about there? Well, that language of the, the day dawning and the morning star rising, morning star rising, is actually language of the second coming. It's language of Jesus' return. So what Peter is saying then is between the first advent and the second advent, what are we to do? We are to give ourselves to looking deep into the glory of Christ as an encouragement to our souls, as the beauty that it is. And Peter did that because he knows that there was no other name under heaven by which man would be saved so Peter told, right, the Pharisees in the first century, those who said, Peter, you've got to stop it with talking about Jesus so much. I'm glad that you have something that's working for your life, but don't push that onto the rest of us. Peter goes, but there's no other name. There's no other name given under heaven by which men will be saved. So I have to talk about the name of Christ because under the name of Christ is the glory of God. And that's what we want to do, is we want to give ourselves between the first advent and the second advent to be captivated, to cling to the glory of God in Christ. Now, to end our time, let me give us some handles, handles to really think through, is this concept 
How do I apply this? Like, how do I actually then think about the glory of Christ? If this is something that Christians are called to do, this is something beautiful and good, and you would agree with that, how do you actually do that? Well, let me go back to a man that I quoted earlier today, a man named John Owen. John Owen was this Puritan theologian that lived in England in the 1700s. Uh, He can be pretty tough to read at times, but I would say he's worth it. Just go slow. Because what happens when you read someone like John Owen, and there's many others, is your heart gets pricked for Christ. You begin to feel a way that just captivates your mind and your thoughts and your attention. And and when I was reading some of John Owen's work where he talks about the glory of Christ, I was struck by these questions that he asked his readers. And he asked this question, he says, is Jesus still precious to you? Is Jesus still precious to you? One of the ways to evaluate if the glory of Christ is beautiful is asking the question, is Jesus precious to you? In a way that he followed up with that main question is these sub-questions that are just as thought-provoking. He says, why do you love Jesus? Why do you love him? Why do you trust him? Why do you honor him? Why in the world would you want to spend eternity in heaven with him? Because remember, the beauty of heaven is not heaven itself. It's that God is there. It's that God is there. I don't know about you, but those are pretty intense questions for my own soul. Why do you love him? Why do you trust him? Why do you honor him? Why do you want to spend all of eternity with him? I encourage you to try to answer those questions every day in some format. But let me give us one way that I pray as a church, as I pray that myself would respond to those questions. Well, the reason is, is because that in Jesus... The glory of God, the glory of his love, the glory of his appointed actions are seen. That in Jesus, the glory of his perfect life, his purifying death, his conquering of Satan, sin, and death, and his victory in the resurrection, his beauty of the ascension, display the glory of God. That in Jesus, the glory of Jesus becomes the glory of the church. It becomes the glory of my life. That's why Jesus is precious to me. Now, church, I'm going to pray in just a moment. But I would encourage all of us this Advent season... Maybe just start with that first question. Why is Jesus precious to me? Why do I love him? And I pray that as we continue to walk through this series, that the glory of God would be a quickened answer to those big questions that we get him. We get to see his beauty. We get all of who he is in Jesus. Jesus is the full radiance 
in the glory of God. What a man he is. Well, church, let's end there. Let me pray for us, and then we'll respond. Well, good and gracious Father, we are thankful just for another moment that we can come and open up your word. And Father, I am thankful that you have appointed Christ to be the full radiance of your glory. That when you sent him into this world, that which we celebrate on Christmas Day, that we are not celebrating just the coming of the Savior, but also the beholding of the glory of God. God, I pray that you would help us answer those questions truthfully and honestly. That we don't have to have our own Mount Transfiguration moment because you've given us all of that through your perfect and inspired word. That much like Peter, James, and John, we can look and see that you are truly God. A true God who gave his life for me.